Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And you can check out my blog if you'd like. That is uh, kagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You can shoot me an email at rich at kagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is March 17th, 2022. And I guess Irish eyes are smiling because last night the Notre Dame Fighting Irish got a four-leaf clover and a double overtime win over Rutgers. So they advance from the 11 versus 11 seed game, and we'll see how they hold up. Today, I'm going to talk about an article that I came across this morning in Sportico. It's titled, College Athletics Needs a Hero as NCAA Amateurism Takes Fire. And it is written by a professor at Syracuse University named Rick Burton. And he is a faculty athletics representative, which is a formal position under NCAA conference and institutional governance that acts in theory as a liaison between the athletics interests and the academics interests. So he is identified as Syracuse's faculty athletics representative to the Atlantic Coast Conference and also the NCAA. So you have on-campus faculty athletics representatives, and then you have them at the conference level, and you have them at the NCAA level. It's a position that sort of uh, fills a niche in the mosaic of college sports governance. And uh, as I talk a little bit more about what Professor Burton has to say, I just want to also point out that this position, this FAR position, has been criticized in certain circles as being really nothing more than a cheerleader for athletic interests. Faculty members who hold this position are usually appointed by the university president. And I think it's important to understand the context in which these people speak, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries speak. What's their skin in the game? What's their connection to the business model? And I think that a lot of people reading articles like this from a faculty athletics representative might not know that those positions are aligned with institutional interests, not athlete interests, and that within the institutional setting, they are the status quo. And I think that is true by and large for most FARs. But I want to talk about this article because it illustrates some of the themes that I've talked about in the last two episodes, actually three episodes. One is how easy it is for in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to present their viewpoints in a forum that gets a lot of attention. And that is clearly the case when you editorialize for Sportico. And there's unlikely to be an equal and opposite viewpoint that's presented with the same prominence. But what really jumped out to me was this issue that I talked about in my episode on Bob Bowlesby's comments to the Aspen Forum, Aspen Institute Forum on February 25th. I did an episode on that. And one of the points that I made is that these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries can rattle through their 
status quo friendly talking points and they're in and out of them seamlessly and effortlessly and they're presented as unchallengeable truth. And in this article, Professor Burton does that, not just in how he talks about the issues through his own voice, but some of the quotes that he uses and some of the people that he uses to provide those quotes. And when I was talking about that dynamic in the context of Bob Bowlesby's comments at the Aspen Forum, I did it when he was talking about the cost of attendance scholarship, and he made it sound like that was the product of the magnanimity and good faith of the Power Five conference commissioners. And he was in and out of that talking point in 15 seconds, and it took me 15 minutes to explain why that was an absolute misleading narrative. And the, the power of being able to have a, a megaphone where you can r just literally rattle off misleading talking points and then just move on and have them accepted as unchallengeable wisdom is really part of the problem in the way that big-time college sports positions itself for public consumption. So I'm just going to go through the article and point out a few things here. So the central premise, as expressed in the title of this article, is that we need a Churchillian kind of hero to save college sports. And he, he talks about a motivational tactic that Churchill used during World War II to inspire hope in English citizens. And then Professor Bird springboards into this. On a different battlefield, the NCAA has lost a lot lately, making one pressing question logical. Is there a single Churchillian figure able to provide university presidents with confidence for America's intercollegiate sports future. And then he talks about the Austin decision, the 9-0 decision, and says the NCAA is regrouping from that. And then he goes on. Now on the West Coast, plaintiffs have sued USC, UCLA, the Pac-12, and NCAA, leaning heavily on the National Labor Relations Board's guidance that college athletes can unionize and seek formal labor protection for their services. While there is no NCAA Players Association yet, the ground shakes with discussions about potentially viewing NCAA athletes as employees at the schools currently providing tuition, room, board, books, clothing, a cost of attendance stipend, and for some, $5,980 in educational benefits. And the implied narratives in those three paragraphs could be three episodes. And in this first paragraph that I read, he says, was there a single Churchillian figure able to provide university presidents with confidence for America's intercollegiate sports future? And I find that really an interesting way to frame the issue because it assumes that the university presidents aren't in control of the enterprise of college sports and its regulation and its values, and that we need some Churchillian figure to do for the university presidents what apparently they are not doing for themselves. And you have to remember that the university presidents demanded control over the regulation of college sports and 
Burton makes a reference to the you know need for presidential influence when the NCAA was founded, but he doesn't talk about the fact that historically through the 20th century, and particularly through the movement into the Knight Commission's work in the late 80s and early 90s, the university presidents demanded control of this enterprise, and the concept of institutional control was a product of that demand. And that really dates back to the Carnegie Report in 1929. Henry Pritchett and Howard Savage said, look, the buck stops with the university presidents. If there's a problem, and they were focusing on big-time college football, if there's a problem and a conflict between the, the values of the athletic side and the values of the academic side, that needs to be resolved by the university presidents. And the Knight Commission brought that thinking forward and then explicitly built their model around presidential leadership. That was the fundamental tenet of the Knight Commission's work. And that was brought into NCAA governance in the mid-1990s. And since then, you have had governing boards at the NCAA dominated by university presidents. And since 2003, you've had university presidents serve as the president of the NCAA. So the, the way that Burton framed this issue, it really begs the question of where the university presidents have been through these transformative changes in the last three years and who the hell is really in charge right now. And later in the article, Burton makes some comments that suggest that the university presidents haven't really been stepping up to the plate here, but it's very subtle. And it's just not clear what he's saying here in terms of the role of the university presidents. If he's saying that presidential leadership and control has been a complete failure, and I believe that's the case, then he should just come out and say that and talk about the need for a new type of leadership model. And then the other thing is, if he's saying that the NCAA president, which is supposed to be serving that purpose, the, the, the purpose as the Churchillian leader and the guardian of the values of higher education, if he's saying that the current NCAA president, Mark Emmert, can't serve that role and he needs to go, then say that. But I think the way that Burton frames these issues, he really lets the university presidents off the hook, despite these subtle comments that maybe they should be doing more. and. Let's face it, these university presidents, these Power Five university presidents, they're taking the money and they've sold out and they aren't really talking about values anymore. This isn't about the values of higher education. They frame these discussions in terms of the integrity of college sports, which means how do we protect the business model and keep the gravy train moving? And on this issue of presidential control, there are a couple of other things that I think are worth pointing out. When the Constitution Committee was doing its work, they sent out a survey and it was designed to identify the, the values that should drive the constitutional makeover. And they sent a survey to every Division I university president and chancellor. The response rate for that survey was 37%. 
And this was a 20, 30 minute survey max. And who knows what that means, but that's an abysmal response rate. And it told me that these university presidents either are okay with the status quo or they just don't give a damn. And on the backside of this constitutional makeover, the influence of university presidents was, I think, diluted. So you had the Board of Governors going from 21 members with, I think, 16 university presidents and chancellors down to nine. And on that nine-member board, I think there was going to be one university president from each division. Yet at the same time, you had the principle of institutional control retained in the new constitution, and that puts the responsibility directly and ultimately on university presidents. But the other thing about the constitutional makeover is that the Board of Governors isn't really going to have that much authority. That is the only association-wide board. And with the devolution down of decision-making to the divisions, the uh, Board of Governors isn't going to be as powerful as it was before. So the university presidents, in my judgment, have really been marginalized through this constitutional makeover. And you have conference commissioners and athletics directors taking on a much more prominent role. Is that what the university presidents wanted? That's what they got. And I would have been real interested in hearing Professor Burton's thoughts on that and where presidents fit into this new regulatory structure. And as I read his opinion piece, he was back and forth on that. But that's an important issue. Where are the university presidents? Where should they be? What's their role? And why do we need a Churchill if the university presidents ultimately are the ones that are going to have to decide the direction of college sports? And then we should be talking about what role the NCAA president serves. Again, under this new constitution, the NCAA president's kind of been neutered. And I think that reflects some concerns that the movers and shakers in this transformation committee had about Mark Emmert's leadership. And if this is an NCAA president leadership issue, then let's just say that. But it seems that the, the Churchillian figure should be occupying the office of the NCAA president. And I think we can all agree that Mark Emmert is not our Churchill. And on the point of whether Emmert should stay or go, and it's not clear to me if uh, Burton was kind of quietly suggesting that we needed that change in leadership. But on that question, you have to remember that just 10, 11 months ago, in April of 2021, the Board of Governors, dominated by university presidents and chancellors, voted to extend Mark Emmert's contract. And it was a head scratcher. A lot of people struggled with that. And I did as well and talked quite a bit about it in one of my episodes. And I would, you know, want to ask Burton, if you're not looking at the office of the NCAA president for to have your Churchill, if they're not going to occupy that office, what's the process? How, how are we going to determine who that should be? And how they acquire a seat at the table. Because the university presidents and chancellors who are sitting at that table and have been sitting at that table seem to think that Mark Emmert is doing a hell of a job because they just gave him a contract extension and he will continue making his, what is it, three, four million dollars. Even though under this new constitution, the NCAA president has even less responsibility than it did before. And, that, and there wasn't a lot because big time football's running the NCAA. And it did before this constitutional 
makeover. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about this Churchillian solution when I look at some of the people that Burton suggests as candidates. And then before I go into some of these narratives that are woven into this op-ed piece, I just want to point out that Burton, like a lot of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, weaves these themes in in a very subtle way and a seemingly neutral way. But I think the impression that is left, and this is exactly what happened with that Bob Bowlesby interview with the Aspen Institute, he made it appear as if he was open to discussing the possibility that athletes could be employees. But when you looked carefully at what he said, he just didn't want to go there. And he was going right back to all the talking points that were fundamentally inconsistent with moving this business model into the 21st century. And I see some of the same things in the techniques that Burton uses. And I think where both Bowlesby and Burton land is with creating this impression that college sports is under siege and it's come from these external threats and these athletes who just don't know how good they've got it. And some of the same talking points about all the wonderful things that these athletes get are uh, part of that false narrative. And I, I'm going to go through some of the specific ways that, that Burton does that in, in this op-ed. But what's the overall impression? What's the takeaway? And I think, as with Bob Bowlesby's interview at the Aspen Institute, Burton lands with, there is just chaos and we are under assault. We, meaning the, the status quo, the institutional status quo, is under assault and we've lost our way and this is supposed to be about education and it's not really about that. And we need to turn the clock back to a time when everything was safe and the college sports world was orderly and people had their values straight. And that appeal is, is tempting, but it's not realistic. And it doesn't acknowledge that the reason that we're in what Bowlesby and Burton perceive to be a state of existential chaos is because the very university presidents who were charged with pulling back on commercialization and professionalization have instead accelerated it. And all of these external threats that are laying siege to the otherwise orderly world of big-time college sports are the product of athletes being put in a place where they have no choice in order to protect their interests, not just as student athletes, but as free Americans, they've had to resort to federal courts and uh, state legislatures and advocacy groups to be treated fairly and to have their true worth to this multi-billion dollar big-time college sports industry recognized and protected in some way. And again, the athletes' rights movement hasn't resulted in a really big leap forward. They've gotten these small things over the last 16 years, the cost of attendance scholarship, you know, $5,900 education benefit, neither of which have to be 
provided. Those are purely permissive. But these athletes really still aren't in a position where their true value to the system is being recognized in a tangible way. And you have all these narratives that are designed to delegitimize the value of these athletes. And Burton includes some of those, again, in a seemingly neutral way. But they're here. They're in this op-ed piece, just as they were in Bob Bowlesby's comments to the Aspen Institute just a few weeks ago. So after this initial setup that, to me, raises more questions than it answers about who has been in control of college sports and who should be going forward, we go right into what I think are pretty clearly two false narratives. One, the sky is falling. And number two, look at how much these athletes get. So Burton talks about the Austin decision and then the groundwork that's being done to try to get athletes recognized as statutory employees under federal law. Burton doesn't mention the Johnson case in the Third Circuit under the Fair Labor Standards Act, but he does talk about this misclassification issue under the National Labor Relations Act, one that I think was put together by Ramogi Huma. He doesn't mention Michael Shue's initiative, which actually predated Huma's. He says that the ground shakes with discussions about potentially viewing NCAA athletes as employees. Wow. Heaven forbid that athletes be deemed employees. This isn't a ground-shaking event. This is just something that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been in denial about for decades. And as the revenues have increased exponentially over the last uh, 20, 30 years in football and men's basketball, yet the compensation limits have remained in place and the compensation essentially the same, that disparity seems less and less defensible. And this goes back to one of these techniques that in-system stakeholder beneficiaries use. They take the, the commonplace and they make it seem extraordinary. And then they take the extraordinary and make it seem commonplace. So when Burton says the ground shakes with discussions about potentially viewing NCAA athletes as employees, that is making the commonplace seem extraordinary. There are 160 million employees in the United States of America. It is not a a bad thing to be an employee. The only industry in which it is a bad thing, a terrible thing to be an employee is in intercollegiate athletics for the athletes who provide the value in a multi-billion dollar industry each year. Having the status of athlete employee and student at the same time is perfectly acceptable. Those are not mutually exclusive statuses. I doubt very much that the ground will shake or the sky will fall if revenue producing athletes and their highly specialized and very valuable labor are recognized by granting them the status of employees. They can join the other 160 million employed Americans. And that would be a good thing. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And then Burton pivots to what I think is another kind of tired talking point, and that is look at everything that these athletes get. And he rattles off everything. They get tuition, room, board, books, clothing, cost of attendance stipend, and for some, $5,980 in education benefits. That's the same list that we've gotten for years from in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. Uh, Mark Emmert does it. People testifying in Congress for the NCAA and the Power Five use the same tactic. You had Bob Bowlesby doing that. It is just uh, so deeply ensconced into the way that they 
talk about the value of these athletes or their lack of value. Because by saying that uh, these are wonderful things that these athletes get and they should just be happy with them and just sit down and be quiet. And, and it's important to understand when insistive stakeholder beneficiaries use this tactic and this very argument, they are directing it to revenue-producing athletes in the Power Five conferences, the very athletes who give the college sports industry all of its value. The cost of attendance scholarship is made available in the NCAA structure through autonomy legislation, which applies by definition only to the Power Five conferences. And I believe it's only the Power Five conferences now who are offering these permissive education benefits under Austin. But those, both of those components of the benefit package that Power Five athletes may get, again, they're purely permissive. Those are modest. They're very modest. And both of these benefits were the product of antitrust litigation filed by revenue-producing athletes in O'Bannon and in Austin. And I'm not going to go back through the history of the cost of attendance scholarship, but it is required by a federal court order, a Ninth Circuit ruling that prohibits the uh, NCAA from setting a scholarship limit below the full cost of attendance. Schools don't have to offer the, the full cost of attendance scholarship, but the NCAA can't set a limit below. That was a remedy in O'Bannon. The district court ordered it, and then the Ninth Circuit upheld it. And then in Austin, the education benefit was the product of, what, seven years of brutal litigation. And on the back side of that, the athletes got this modest $5,900 benefit. But when we're talking about who benefits from that, we're only talking about Power 5 athletes. And the athletes who got those benefits in place were revenue-producing athletes. So we're not talking about downstream Division One or Division Two or Division Three. We're not talking about any of the Olympic or non-revenue sports. When this card is played by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. Look at all the things these athletes get. They are directing it specifically to the revenue-producing football and men's basketball players, a substantial majority of whom are African-American. And when in-system stakeholder beneficiaries like Burton are listing off all these wonderful things that these athletes get, this is the brushback pitch to critics of the current business model and for athletes' rights advocates. It's like, these kids just need to sit down and shut the hell up because look at everything they get. How in the world can they complain? How in the world can you insist on more than what these kids have right now? And again, that goes back to this false narrative that the proper yardstick is what the athletes didn't have before as opposed to what they're truly worth. The in-system stakeholder beneficiaries don't want to talk about it on those terms. So then we get to a quote from Ohio State Athletics Director Gene Smith. And I'm assuming that Burton reached out to him and has a connection to him. And this is a live quote for this article. So Smith says, we've been on the defensive as the NCAA forever. I can't remember when we were ever on the offensive. Burton goes on, that sounds like a veiled call for a hero. Someone like diplomat Condoleezza Rice or billionaire Lorene Powell Jobs or a progressive conference commissioner like the big 
Big East's Val Ackerman, who can align athletic allegiances while simultaneously reimagining college sports. I'm not sure there is any single one person out there who can tackle that challenge, said Ackerman, the first president of the WNBA. It will take a village and probably federal intervention to sort out all of the legal complexities involved. And there's so much there. Just in that little tidbit, this goes back to my original point that I tied into this Bowlesby interview. And that is how quickly, easily, and effortlessly in-system stakeholder beneficiaries can get in and out of these talking points and they just become a seamless component of the overall messaging. And in the aggregate, that messaging, even in a seemingly neutral op-ed, they leave an impression that reinforces in-system stakeholder beneficiary interests. And another common technique that's very subtle but very effective is who you get quotes from and letting what they say stand on its own without analysis. And Burton does that here, both with Gene Smith and with Val Ackerman. You may ask, why are we getting quotes from Gene Smith and Val Ackerman? That's a good question. Gene Smith and Val Ackerman are no strangers to NCAA dysfunction. In fact, I believe they are in large part responsible for the name, image, and likeness debacle. And Burton doesn't say this, but Gene Smith and Val Ackerman were co-chairs of the NCAA's Federal and State Legislation Working Group that was formed on May 14th of 2019 on the backside of the NCAA's militant opposition to name, image, and likeness. And remember, we flowed seamlessly from the attorney's fees litigation in O'Bannon, which ended in mid-2018, into 2019, and the Mark Walker bill, which was a threat to NCAA entry. Then into the discussions about SB 206, the California law. And at that time, the NCAA was doing everything in its power to prevent athletes from having the opportunity to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. They were threatening to sue the state of California. They went after Mark Walker. They put together this working group to make it appear as if they were going to do something on nil. And they announced that working group with a big splash and press releases and all this fanfare. And what that working group finally recommended in April of 2020 was a complete takedown of the athletes' rights movement through a set of congressional protections and immunities that were unprecedented in the history of the regulation of sports in America, college, professional, or Olympics. It was just a, an audacious power grab. And that's where this committee landed. And when Gene Smith says that I can't remember when we were ever on the offensive, that's just not true. It's just not true. In fact, the entire campaign of this working group, this false campaign for quote-unquote nil compensation, was the NCAA going on the offensive. They've splashed on their website under the banner, taking charge, name, image, and likeness, that they were going to quote-unquote modernize their rules. And they talked about that since 2019. And to this day, not a single word of a, a single relevant bylaw in the NCAA Division I manual has been changed as it relates to name, image, and likeness. And the nil market that exists right now is 
actually the product of Mark Emmert's arrogance and incompetence, not thoughtful NCAA voluntary regulation and legislation. They've abandoned their voluntary rulemaking in January of 2021 under pretext, this alleged pressure from the Justice Department. They sat on the sidelines thinking that they might get antitrust immunity in Austin, and then also thinking that they could, behind the scenes, try to get at least preemption in Congress. That was their strategy. It wasn't to provide meaningful name, image, and likeness opportunities. And so Smith says, ah, gosh, we've never been on offense here. We need to go on offense. They did that at the public relations level, but then more importantly, they did that through their stealth campaign in the Senate. And that working group, remember, in November of 2019, formed a subcommittee called the Presidential Subcommittee on Congressional Action. And it was a subset of this working group, which had, I don't know, maybe 20 members. The, the work of this Presidential Subcommittee on Congressional Action received virtually no coverage. And I really hadn't heard of it until after the final report was made public in April of 2020. That's when we learned about this subcommittee and the nature of its work. And I want to go to that final report to describe for you what that PSCA said about its work and its intentions in their congressional campaign. And so this uh, Board of Governors working group, federal and state legislation working group that Smith and Ackerman are chairing, gets this big splash. And then initially, and I'm going to talk all about this when I get to the House case, because in my episode evolution, I was starting to walk through this perfect storm starting in 2019. And I had gotten through the Walker bill. And the next episode was going to be this working group that was formed on May 14th of 2019. And I stopped that work and then went to something else. I'm going to return to it when I start talking about this House case and what the Transformation Committee is going to be looking at in terms of the future of amateurism and how it fits into this name, image, and likeness issue that's uh, becoming increasingly problematic through the lens of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the status quo interests. But when you go back and you trace the history of NIL, and I, I will do that in upcoming episodes. Since 2019, since this really was put front and center through this Walker bill and then the California Fair Pay to Play Act, the response of the NCAA, the Power Five and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries was one of fundamental hostility. They masked that through this working group. But the initial question for that working group wasn't how to offer name, image, and likeness benefits. It was whether to offer name, image, and likeness benefits. And as its work progressed, it transformed into looking for public appearances, like they were really talking about how, but behind the scenes, through their congressional campaign and this momentum they had built up to try to get all these federal protections and immunities that would have allowed them to do nothing on nil, the real motivation was whether. And in that question, it was no, hell no. So behind the scenes, they were going to snuff out this nil market through federal legislation. But for public appearances, they were making it look like they were marching forward and taking action and modernizing their rules. But in this work product of the working group, the final report stated April 17th, 2020, I think was actually released on April 28th or April 29th. And you have to go to the, the bowels of the document. It's a, let me see how many pages is this thing. I've got it for my dog here to copy right here. So it's 30 plus pages long. And the last few pages talk about this presidential subcommittee on congressional action, why it was formed, 
what its charge was and what it recommended. So let me just read these recommendations. Number one, support the ongoing modernization effort of NCAA rules in areas of student-athlete well-being, including student-athlete experience, health and safety, and academic success, and, and, two, immediately engage Congress to accomplish the following. One, ensure federal preemption over state name, image, and likeness laws. Number two, establish an antitrust exemption for the association. Three, safeguard the non-employment status of student athletes. And I want to talk a little bit about each of these components, these three asks, in the context of Smith's comments and the impression that's left in this article through that quote, that the NCAA has been passive and defensive and has never gone on offense. And that is simply a false narrative because these three things together would completely eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And that was their very purpose. But this first thing, preemption, federal preemption over state name, image, and likeness laws. Federal preemption would nullify those state laws, and it would completely take states out of the regulatory field. If the NCAA had gotten this preemption with the stroke of a congressional pen, all of those state name, image, and likeness laws, any executive orders on name, image, and likeness would literally disappear overnight, and they could never come back. And the other thing that's important to note here is that this preemption provision on its face was supposed to be limited to name, image, and likeness laws. But when you look at the bills that were introduced by Republican senators doing the NCAA and Power Five's bidding in 2020, the actual preemption provisions in those bills, this is true in the Rubio bill, the Wicker bill, the Moran bill, and on the House side in the Shabbat bill, all of those bills and in the NCAA proposal, all of those bills had preemption provisions that were not limited to name, image, and likeness. So they would have nullified any state law that attempted to interfere in any way with the NCAA's regulatory authority or any of their compensation limits or any of their eligibility rules. And then we have the second thing, an antitrust exemption for the association. And this is not a limited antitrust exemption. It is a broad exemption that would take federal courts completely off the table as an external regulatory threat. And that means that athletes wouldn't be able to file federal antitrust suits. And then this last thing that's, I think, a little bit disguised in the language that it uses, safeguard the non-employment status of student athletes means athletes can't be employees. And that word safeguard, safeguard the non-employment status as if the NCAA and the Power Five can claim non-employment status as an asset. It's theirs to safeguard. And it's just another expression of the arrogance of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and their belief that they should have absolute iron-fisted control over these athletes. 
And all three of these extraordinary federal protections and immunities were included in these NCAA-friendly Republican bills that I mentioned earlier. And if the NCAA and Power Five had been successful in getting one of these bills passed, then the athletes' rights movement is over. It's over. And the NCAA would be untouchable as a national regulatory authority in college sports, and they could have their way. And I just want to bring this back to the comment that Gene Smith made, that the NCAA had never gone on offense. That is just a breathtaking statement from Smith, because the NCAA and Power Five didn't just go on offense. They came in with a blitzkrieg, a legislative blitzkrieg. Burton used the war analogy to introduce his theme, and I'm going to use the Blitzkrieg analogy to describe the power of the offensive threat that the NCAA brought into the legislative process beginning in 2019. And the Blitzkrieg was a three-pronged military approach. You come in with your air firepower, and then you follow it up with the tanks, and then you bring in the foot soldiers behind them. That's what the NCAA was doing with federal preemption, antitrust immunity, and a declaration that athletes can't be employees. And if the NCAA and Power Five had been successful in that blitzkrieg, the athletes' rights movement would have looked like a city that had been flattened by a German blitzkrieg. That's what they brought to the to this game. So the NCAA and Power Five didn't just go on offense. They came in with a take-no-prisoners assault. And thankfully, the NCAA and Power Five were not successful in their blitzkrieg. They had the Air Force, the tanks, and the foot soldiers lined up, but they were never deployed because none of these bills made it to a vote. But it wasn't for lack of trying, and it wasn't for lack of twisting arms behind the scenes in Congress. And I think a substantial contributing factor to the failure of the NCAA Power Five campaign in Congress, primarily in the Senate, was the arrogance that they brought into it. Mark Emmert was just pissing people off left and right. But it wasn't just Mark Emmert. I think it was the whole package, the whole process, and the attitude that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries brought into Congress as if they had an entitlement to that kind of protective legislation. And Gene Smith and Val Ackerman, who were in charge of this campaign from the beginning, they didn't come in with any neutrality or objectivity or disinterest. Both of those people were making millions and millions of dollars in the then existing status quo. And they were doing everything in their power to preserve it. And I'm going to get to the money issue here in a second. But before I do that, I just want to pull up an article. This was an op-ed penned jointly by Val Ackerman and then PAC-12 Conference Commissioner Larry Scott during March Madness in 2016. And remember, Burton has portrayed Ackerman as this progressive person, and she can realign athletic allegiances while simultaneously reimagining college sports. But in this 
op-ed to CNN, she is jumping into that time machine and sending us right back to 1950. The title of this op-ed is College Athletes Are Being Educated, Not Exploited, March 30th, 2016. This is just a list of talking points that were readily accessible to in-system stakeholder beneficiaries in 2016, and they're still being recycled. And some of them delegitimize the laborers in big-time college sports, the majority of whom are African-American men. But they say that because of their experiences, they can attest that hundreds of thousands of students across the country benefit enormously from playing college sports. I guess I should also note that Larry Scott was, I think, the highest paid conference commissioner. He, his salary was $5 million. And they go through all the propaganda about uh, life lessons and time management and all this happy malarkey. And then they say, at a time when student debt is a major national issue, the men's and women's basketball players in our conferences don't have to worry about oppressive financial obligations when they leave school. Read, all of you middle-class parents who are scraping together money and borrowing yourselves into debt and spending your retirement to pay outlandish tuition, you are the real heroes. These greedy athletes all leave with college degrees, debt-free and carefree. Yeah, that's life for these athletes. They say they, they go to college on full scholarships, and when they graduate, most graduate debt-free. They receive cost of attendance benefits, meaning their day-to-day -day needs, such as food, housing, clothing, gas, and trips home, are covered. They also get high-quality medical care, academic support, and quality travel experiences, in some cases globally. By some measures, these students receive far more in benefits than the average American makes in a year in income. Can you believe they actually wrote that? So this is the ultimate brushback pitch. This is an attempt to delegitimize the athletes who underwrite the entire college sports industrial complex. And while Ackerman and Scott are all about comparing what these athletes have to the average American, they're not talking about their salaries in comparison to the average American. So Scott's four or five million dollar salary, I think, is probably a little bit higher than the average American makes in a year. And Val Ackerman's million-dollar-plus salary at that time was pretty doggone nice compared to the average American. And their salaries are paid off the backs of the very laborers that they just delegitimized. Then they go on about all the wonderful things that college does for these athletes. And then they say, in recent years, however, critics of college sports have alleged that these students are exploited. The students should get a salary, the critics say, because because their schools generate revenues from the TV contracts that carry certain college games. And then they land with two short declarative sentences. They're not exploited, they're educated. And then they close out by saying, we hope the day never arrives when students are paid salaries, turned into professionals because of lawsuits that disregard these critical principles. These are not professional athletes, they're students. It's that Simple. If the critics prevail, higher education will never be the same again, and that would be a march into madness. Progressive? Is this a progressive way of thinking? I don't think so. So while we're talking about money, let's look at where Smith is now. He just got a contract extension through 2026, and his base salary is 1.5, but then he gets bonuses, including bonuses based on athletic and academic accomplishments. So he gets to be financially rewarded when a team wins games or when a kid makes the Big Ten 
honor roll. He has virtually nothing to do with either of those things, but he gets $600,000 per year in bonuses. Smith also gets $480,000 as annual supplemental compensation as, quote, Ohio State recognizes the importance of the director's leadership and representation, end quote, for the media promotions and public relations impact the university received. That's a nice little bump up. So that's $2.5 million a year for Smith. And Val Ackerman's not doing too badly either. So I'm looking at the Big East Conference's Form 990 tax return for the tax year 2019. It was filed in 2020, and this was the most recent tax return that was on file with the IRS. So in that tax year, Ms. Ackerman made nearly $2 million, $1,862,509 in base, then about $56,000 in supplementaries. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And remember, the Big East is a basketball-centric conference. They don't really have a big-time football product. Their revenue comes from men's basketball. So the irony of Ackerman's comments in, in, in 2016, where she's just talking about how lucky these guys are, and they need to just sit down and shut the hell up with their cost of attendance scholarships. Well, those very guys are the guys that fund the Big East Conference. Revenue from Division One men's basketball underwrites the business model of the Big East Conference. And Division I men's basketball has the highest concentration of African-American athletes in any NCAA sport in any NCAA division. And what I'd like to know is what are the graduation rates for the men's basketball players in the Big East? The true graduation rates. And you have these made-up metrics that mean nothing. And back in that episode on Bob Bowlesby's comments to Aspen, one of the things he said that I, I didn't talk about, I wish I had, but one of the things he said that really perked me up a little bit, and I'm like, is he really saying this? Is that these made-up metrics, the, the GSR, the graduation success rate, and and the academic progress rate are nothing more than dumbed down standards to make it appear as if there's academic success when there is no meaningful true measurement of academic success. And we really don't know what's behind those numbers. And we're not talking about the attrition rates. We're only talking about the six-year graduation rates. And then you take people out of the pool who transfer or go pro. Th those aren't meaningful numbers. But even with those metrics, what are the graduation rates here for men's basketball and how do they compare to the rest of the sports? All right, so let's keep going down the Churchill list and let's see, the next one we got is Condoleezza Rice. And I have written and spoken quite a bit about Dr. Rice because she too is no stranger to the NCAA. And Burton doesn't mention that Condoleezza Rice was the chair of the Commission on College Basketball, which was formed in October of 2017 to address all the quote-unquote corruption from the basketball scandal that resulted in criminal prosecutions in the Southern District of New York. And I've talked about that quite a bit. And I've talked about the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball in the context of infractions and enforcement. And that was one of the most consequential sets of uh, recommendations that were offered. And I, I really think it's interesting 
to look at the way that Dr. Rice handled that role because she's a smart woman. She's heard a bunch of BS in her time as Secretary of State, very sophisticated BS. And I think she was hearing a lot of that from the NCAA. And she actually took some shots at the NCAA in, in a very diplomatic way. But she described the leadership model as a circular firing squad. And that still exists. And I think that right now, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries benefit from the circular firing squad because nobody's ever responsible. Nobody's ever accountable. Nobody knows who the hell is in charge. And that is the fundamental flaw in the way that uh, Burton rolled up this whole issue. You're looking for Churchill, but there's nobody that wants to be Churchill because the business model functions with an absence of accountability. That's how it has worked for decades. And it's working just fine on those terms. And Gene Smith can keep making his 2.5 and Val Ackerman can keep making her 2 million. And Bob Bowlesby can keep making his 4.4 million. And all these coaches can be making their six, seven, eight, nine, ten million uh, dollar salaries, and everything rolls along okay in the circular firing squad. And guess what? The games go on. The games go on. I don't think Val Ackerman or Gene Smith or Bob Bowlesby are losing any sleep right now about the future of college sports. But I think there was some cognitive dissonance there with Rice because she's a smart woman and she's looking at this business model. I think she sees some problems with it. And one of them was this notion, because you talked about NIL, because NIL came up with this Commission on College Basketball, and it's been something the NCAA has been talking about for a long time, hasn't done a damn thing on it. So she wanted to push that along. They didn't address it. And some people thought that was a punt, but she did make some comments outside of the actual report. And she said, look, the NCAA needs to do something on nil. They need to do it quickly. And by the way, I don't know how in the world you can have meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation within the restrictions of the collegiate model, which prohibit compensation. And that was one of the shortcomings all along. I've talked so much about that. But she at least identified that and she said it out loud. And how do you draw this distinction between name, image, and likeness compensation that's unrelated to your athletic ability when the very reason that people know who you are is because you're an athlete? And that was never a defensible distinction to draw. But those were the kind of hairs that this nil working group was splitting. And Gene Smith and Val Ackerman were splitting to try to make it almost impossible for these athletes to actually make any money off of their name, image, and likeness. And there, were, there was no intention to even have that legislation. If they'd gotten their federal protections and immunities, the discussion's over, the NCAA does whatever the hell it wants to, and there's nothing that anybody can do. Not a state legislature, not a federal court, not any external advocacy groups. Game, set, match, it's over. But they made it as difficult as possible within these guardrails that they were talking about. And I think Rice saw that. She saw the absurdity of that. And she tried to call it out in her own way. The other thing that she did, I think, which showed some independence, she looked at the NCAA governance model and these university presidents who are supposed to be pulling back on commercialization and professionalization under the reasoning of the Knight Commission and this whole presidential leadership and control movement, but they were actually accelerating it. And she thought there were some conflicts of interest there, and there were massive conflicts of interest. So the Commission on College Basketball recommended five, quote unquote, independent members of the Board of Governors. And those independent members were seated, but nothing changed. Nothing changed. But but the most important thing I want to point out about uh, Rice, and because she's on Burton's Churchill shortlist, is that almost everything that was recommended by that Commission on College Basketball 
wound up being undone. It, it just fell apart. A lot of the, the recommendations that went to the actual game of basketball, the NCAA had no control over anyway, like uh, what's, what happens in grassroots basketball, youth basketball, and the influence of these shoe companies. NCAA has no control over that. They have no control over one and done. Those two things were the whipping boys in their assessment of the state of basketball, and they didn't have a lot of control over many of these moving parts. They did have control over infractions and enforcement, and they did have control over recommending some changes in the governance structure. All of those suggestions have been undone by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. So grassroots basketball is still as corrupt as ever. One and done is still part of the college landscape, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. It has actually been a boon to college basketball because without one and done, there's no Zion Williamson. So those two issues are dead. Nothing's changed. Nothing's going to change. Then you had these recommendations on infractions and enforcement that have been completely neutered by this constitutional makeover by Greg Sankey and by people who, at the Power Five level, who are hostile to the existing infractions and enforcement process. And these independent board members really don't have a meaningful role under this new constitution. Because as I said earlier, the Board of Governors is being pulled back from 21 to 9, and I think there are one, maybe two independent Board of Governors members, independent by NCAA standards. It's all self-appointing within the Board of Governors. So this, the influence of independent members on the Board of, of Governors has been limited as well. And then this independent accountability resolution process for complex cases in infractions and enforcement, which was really one of the centerpieces of the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations, that is on its way out as well. And that has been on Greg Sankey's hit list for uh, a couple of years since it went fully operational in August of 2019. And now we have a few cases that are in it, like this LSU case that just got some publicity. There are like three or four other cases that are in that system, and they're going to go through that system. And then once that happens, if I understand the the statement of the Transformation Committee and the head of the Division One Board of Directors, that's going to be the end of the IARP. And that's exactly what Greg Sankey has wanted all along. So on the backside of all of that, what the Commission on College Basketball did, its work is virtually meaningless. It's just been stripped clean. And you have to ask yourself, if Condoleezza Rice, with her credentials and her stature and her intellect, can't make these what really should have been no-brainer changes to d dysfunctions in the existing governance model, how is she going to come in and be a female Churchill? H how's that going to work? And Bob Gates, why isn't he on the list? He served his purpose as the head of this Constitution Committee. Honestly, when you look at the work of this Constitution Committee and the things that Gates said from the very beginning when he first announced his involvement on July 30th of 2021, it has been a success only through the lens of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. I don't think it's been a great thing for athletes. And I don't think that it has been a, a great thing for interests outside of the Power Five, except to the extent that Division Two and Division Three got their welfare checks, their guaranteed welfare checks from March Madness money. So I would say so far, Burton's 0 for 3. And 0 for 4, if you would just throw in a bonus, Churchill and, and Gates. So you're 0 for 4. But I, I want to go on with this article. There's another quote from Ackerman. She says, I'm not sure that there is any one single person out there who can tackle that challenge. It will take a village and probably federal 
intervention to sort out all the legal complexities involved. I read that earlier, but this kind of is on the backside of the short list, the Churchill list. And Ackerman saying, I'm not sure that it's one person. I, I agree with her on that. But then she's right back to where this working group that she led in 2019 started, and that is with a federal bailout. And when she says federal intervention, I think she's talking about the very type of federal intervention that the NCAA and Power Five tried to get in 2019 and 2020. And then Burton talks about, could a new leader better serve the upscale village neighborhood made up of the NCAA schools and the Power Five conferences while keeping the word college and college sports? And that's just old school, dead language from another era. We're not even speaking that language anymore. And that's the other thing. Burton lands in a place that I think is worth some discussion. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, to the extent that he's talking about alignment between the business of college sports and the goals of higher education, we're not having that conversation anymore. And certainly the university presidents that he seems to be so deferential to have decided that they don't want to have that discussion anymore. They've taken the money. So let's see. And he raises the, the the usual canards. Title IX, what about Title IX? And then he says, long-standing fans might reject teams sponsored by universities largely because Saturday athletes no longer attended classes Monday through Friday. That is a resurrection of the very argument that the United States Supreme Court unanimously rejected. And that is that there is consumer demand for unpaid labor. That's what Burton is talking about here. That, gosh, consumers aren't going to like this if these guys get paid. And then, and then Burton closes this thing out with something that I think is worth a discussion. Because in all of this uncertainty and in this power grab by the Power Five, and I think Burton understands that, and as he's getting to the end here, I think he does show some recognition that the college presidents have some say in this. They're not, they don't need to wait for Churchill. And that's one of my arguments. Why are we waiting for Churchill? We don't need Churchill. The people who should be in charge of this need to stand up and accept accountability and responsibility and then make some difficult choices. That's what it comes down to. But that's not the way this business model is structured. Then at the very end of this article, I think he touches on something that is important. And in all of the uncertainty in college sports and the power grabs by the Power Five football interests, the football interests, but you have these big-time schools, almost all big, powerful state institutions. They're marching forward, and there may be a super division, and, and Burton talks about the possibility of that. But instead of looking at that in terms of gloom and doom, I would say that this could be an opportunity for the participants in the big-time college sports sweepstakes and the university presidents who find it distasteful and fundamentally inconsistent with the values of higher education to jump off the train. I, I talked about the University of Chicago a few episodes ago. What was the guy's name? Hutchins. I can't remember his first name. The president of the University of Chicago in the 1930s and 1940s, I think, just looked at the big-time college football train that was coming down the tracks and said, we don't want to get on that train. We're just getting out of the way, and we're jumping off, and we're just getting out of football, which they did in the 1930s. And then they left the Big Ten altogether in the 1940s. And I don't think the University of Chicago has been harmed in any way as an institution of importance in the United States of America. You might be able to make the case that they are better off in terms of their academic prestige. 
by being outside of the big-time college sports sweepstakes. Who knows? But in looking at this through the values of higher education, not through the quote-unquote integrity of college sports, which, which means preserving this corrupt business model, but the values of higher education, wouldn't this be a great time? to have a super Ivy kind of conference. And Burton talks about this choice that, that the universities might have to, to go with a basically an NFL kind of product on the football side, or just jumping off altogether. And then maybe the schools that have uh, a lot in common at the academic level and have high standards and aspirations academically, that they could band together. I think that would be a wonderful thing. And I don't think that for the schools that really aren't winning in the big time college sports sweepstakes, some of the private schools in the Power Five, for example, that don't have really good uh, football products. What if those schools just sort of jumped off the train and went in with similarly situated and minded schools? And just, they could offer on a sport-by-sport basis, high-quality programs, but they wouldn't be in the big-time football sweepstakes. That's what it really comes down to. Are you in or out of the big-time football sweepstakes? And I think when Burton's talking about that, at the values level, towards the end of his op-ed, I think that's a great thing to be talking about. And then he closes it out by saying, either way, 21st century realities mean an empire of athletic enterprise is under siege and a visionary hero might come in handy. Now, again, it plays into this notion that the application of American values means that the empire of athletic enterprise is under siege. That is right from the playbook of the NCAA and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who want everyone to believe that the sky is falling and the only way to solve the problem is to turn our clocks back to the 1950s. And the easiest pathway to that is draconian federal legislation that will end the athletes' rights movement. And this brings me to my final point and a point that I made in that discussion about Bowlesby. In the final analysis here, with all this uncertainty in college sports, we have two choices. We can err on the side of these indefensible institutional values that are expressed in this op-ed. This is a, a smorgasbord of narratives that protect institutional interests. And these institutions have chosen to be in this game. They've chosen to be in this game. Are we going to err on the side of those interests and those values, or are we going to err on the side of American values, American freedoms, American liberties, free markets, and free competition, and civil rights, and social justice? You can't be on the in-system stakeholder beneficiary side of this equation and the values that they have used to preserve their status quo and also be talking about these freedoms and liberties and social justice and civil rights. Those two are mutually exclusive. The way that those values have been expressed by the stakeholder groups. So what's the choice here? We have a choice to make. Which way are we going to go? And I think history has proven that the only winning choice presented with American values versus un-American values is to go with American values. And why don't we just do that? And let's see what happens. Instead of the enterprise being under siege, Maybe we can say the enterprise is finally coming into its full potential through principles of American freedoms and American economic liberties. Why don't we talk about it 
on those terms. I think that would be a nice course correction in this conversation. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.